We've come to Romans chapter 13 this morning, so I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles. We're in the part of Romans, the last major part of the book, that uh, deals with the practice of God's righteousness. Last time we looked at chapter 12, which talks about our relationship with God and our relationship with people in the body of Christ, the church. And now in chapter 13, Paul deals with our relationship as citizens of the state. He talks about our conduct within the governments under which we live as Christians. This is the subject of the whole 13th chapter. And, of course, it's very relevant in view of what's going on in the world today. The first seven verses in particular focus on our conduct toward government, and then Paul broadens his field of vision to include uh, conduct toward unbelievers more generally, and then focuses in the last part of this chapter on our hope as that which should have an influence on our conduct. God has established three institutions under which we as human beings live, Um, The first one that he established was the family. And he did that, as we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. He established the family as an institution in the world under which people live. And everybody, of course, is a member of some family. The second institution that he founded was government. And he established human government to... Uh, act as a larger family over mankind in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. So we not only live in families, but we live in families of nations that are governed by leaders that correspond to parents on the larger sphere. The third institution of which you and I are members is the Church of Jesus Christ, When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we enter into a family-like institution. And on the larger level, the universal church, Jesus Christ, is the head of our family. He is referred to as our elder brother. On the local level, of course, we enter into a family-type relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our church leaders, our elders, are the, the elder brothers in our family, and they provide guidance and direction and help and discipline when necessary in the church. So all of us who live at the present time live in all of these spheres of relationships, which are referred to as institutions, the family, government, and church. So as we get into chapter 13, we are dealing with that institution called the government, and Paul has to say some things about how we are to conduct ourselves living in that institution. Verse 1 says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist, that is, those authorities which exist, 
are established by God. Every person, he is speaking to Christians here, of course, so Christians are primarily in view, but what he has to say applies to literally every individual as well. Let every person be in subjection to or subject to. We are to live subject to the governing authorities. In our case, of course, we have governing authorities in Austin, in Plano, in Washington, uh, under whose authority we live, and according to Paul, we are to be subject to them. And then he gives the reason. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist are established by God. So we should view the uh, authorities under which we live as people whom God has allowed to be in positions of authority over us and to subject ourselves to them, to cooperate with them. In Daniel chapter 4, we have the basis for Paul's statement. Daniel chapter 4 is a record of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Saddam Hussein of his day, who lived in that very part of the world and who was a dictator, probably the most uh, dictator with the fewest constraints upon him that history has seen. He was the law, and whatever he said, people had to do. Daniel lived under his authority, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, lived under his authority. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and chapter 4 of Daniel records that dream. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a huge tree, and the tree was cut off. It was cut down to the ground. And Daniel interpreted this dream, and he said that the tree represented the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and that God had told Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to cut him off. And sure enough, not long after that, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind, and uh, he was not able to function as the leader, the leader of his people, this vast empire that he had been leading. And in his interpretation of this dream, Daniel makes a statement that he repeats three times, which is very significant. We find it first in verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High ruler over the realm of mankind is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Very interesting statement. Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar that he is not the ultimate authority in the world, that God is. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it. He gives authority to whomever he wishes. 
and he sets over the realm of mankind, even the lowliest of men. Now drop down to verse 25, and we read this. You will be driven from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 32. You will be driven from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God humbled proud Nebuchadnezzar and uh, took away his sanity temporarily, returned to him eventually, and he resumed his throne. But Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled, and God did it, and in the process reminded him that he stood only by the authority of God. And Paul, I think, has this probably in the back of his mind as he writes Romans 13.1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, we look at Iraq today, and we see a similar individual in power. We see a bully. We see a man who has mistreated his own people, a person who has threatened the safety of millions of people with weapons of mass destruction. And uh, we too should remember that uh, God has allowed this man to come to power, at least temporarily. We hope it will be quite short. But uh, he allowed Hitler to come to power. He dealt with Hitler. He humbled Hitler as well, and I suspect he's going to humble Saddam Hussein likewise. But as we think about the authorities under which we live, we need to remember that these authorities have been established by God. Those which exist are established by God. God's hand is behind everything that is happening in national and international relations. Now, we may think uh, from time to time that if uh, that the government is our big enemy, and certainly there are things about government that we don't like, but uh, let's not forget that the government has been responsible for a lot of good things that we enjoy. Take, for example, the Food and Drug Administration. A hundred years ago, there were very few guidelines and constraints on what people ate. And you could go into the store and buy something off the shelf, and uh, it might not even correspond to what the label on the can said it was. Uh, Sometimes people would go into stores, they would buy things that were polluted, that were not healthful. But in more recent years, the Food and Drug Administration has carefully monitored what is sold and how it's represented in packaging. Uh, There is a law that governs uh, product labeling. 
so that labels accurately reflect what is in that container of food. And that's uh, one example of the good things that government has done. Likewise, of course, law enforcement is a good thing, or there would be more chaos than there is in the country if it were not for our law enforcement officers. And there are many other aspects of governmental activity that have contributed to the good quality of life that we enjoy in our country. And uh, so government is essentially a good thing. God has established it early in the history of man so that it would contribute to the welfare of human beings. And uh, we need to keep that in mind as we read what Paul says should be our relationship to government. Verse 2 goes on, Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If a person just sets himself out to oppose the government and everything the government stands for, he can count on the fact that he's going to bring condemnation on himself. Uh, he's going to be punished. God will punish him through the government for not submitting to an ordinance, an institution that God has established. For, for rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. And I'm sure all of us have experienced this. Uh, you're driving along and uh, you see a police car and you check your speedometer immediately <laughs> to see uh, if I am in danger of being given a ticket here. Um, we fear when we are not in compliance with the law, but if we live according to the law, we really have nothing to fear. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Fine, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. You won't be given tickets. You will be given approval. Now, what about uh, rulers who dominate people? Bad rulers, the Saddam Husseins in the world, they certainly are a cause of fear, even for people who practice good. Does that mean that in those countries people have a right to rebel against the government and not submit? The rulers are not a cause for fear, of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Well, if we live in a society like that, we have several options. We can resist the government, and many have chosen to do so, have led civil revolutions against the government. In view of what we have in this chapter and in First Timothy, I mean First Peter, which Abe has been preaching on recently, the similar instructions concerning our relationship to government that Peter gave us in 1 Peter, in view of those and this, uh, I would not advocate that response myself. There is another response, and that is people can leave the country. People can go where they are safe, and many have chosen to do that. 
Many fled Nazi Germany in World War II rather than uh, submit to that tyrannical leadership. And some chose to stay and to voice their opposition, realizing that they would be incarcerated, put in prison, and perhaps even put to death. Um, several Protestant pastors took that option in Germany in Second World War. One of them was a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who has written a lot of helpful books on discipleship and other subjects. But uh, Bonhoeffer was not at all in sympathy with Hitler, but he felt reluctant to leave his people. And so he decided to stay there, but he voiced his opposition to the government. He publicly said that he did not approve of what Hitler was doing, and this resulted in his being arrested, and he spent considerable time in prison during the Third Reich. That's, that's an option that uh, we would have if we faced a situation like that. That's an option that Iraqis, who are believers in Jesus Christ, face as well. If they cannot flee the country, if they cannot leave it or choose not to, uh, they can voice their opposition, but if they do that, they better prepare, be prepared for the consequences. Verse 4 goes on, For it, that is the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For the government does not bear the sword for nothing. God gave government the power not only to imprison people, but to execute people in Genesis chapter 9. Whosoever man's, sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God created him. God said in Genesis 9, For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. As we think about our police officers, we can think about them as ministers, according to this verse. They are God's servants. It, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. And that's why we honor them. We have had services in this church honoring our police officers, in which we invite all of them in the city to come here and to express our gratitude for what they do for us, uh, because we realize that this is a, a ministry to us from God that comes through them. They protect us. Uh, they maintain, maintain law and order. So the next time you're pulled over by a policeman, uh, you can thank him for being a minister. He probably won't know what in the world you're talking about, but he is a minister of God. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Again, he uses this word that he began with in verse 1, not only because of wrath, not only because they are able to punish you, but also for conscience' sake, because you know it's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, in some 
cities, they have what they call a conscience fund. And uh, I was reading about one city that, uh, well, actually they've done this in Dallas not too long ago. They published in the paper that if you have an outstanding traffic ticket, you can come to the city hall, you can pay it off, and you will not be penalized for doing this. And hundreds of people showed up to pay off their their uh, traffic tickets so that they would not have interest accrued and have to pay an even greater amount. Some communities call that a conscience fund, so that when a person's conscience gets a hold of them, they can pay off their, their debt to the government without additional punishment. We acknowledge that conscience is a motivator uh, as well as fear of punishment. And in one city I read about, uh, they published uh, the fact that there were, I don't remember how many, I'll say a hundred people who uh, needed to come by and pay a particular thing that was past due, a fine that was past due. They had 200 people show up. <laughs> so there were a lot more people with guilty consciences than, than that they, they really had to pay for it. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. It's interesting to me that uh, of all the things that the government requires, probably the, the most distasteful thing for Christians is paying taxes. And you don't have to go too far in many churches to find some people who will give you an argument about paying their taxes. Because, the reasoning goes, my tax money will go to support ungodly things. Uh, my taxes will go to fund programs that I do not support. And so, I'm not going to support that. I'm not going to pay my taxes. Well, it's interesting that of all the responsibilities to government, that Jesus spoke out about, paying your, our taxes was one that he was very explicit about. He said, we need to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Remember, he told Peter to go down to the Sea of Galilee, to throw his hook in the water, and he would catch a fish, and there would be enough money in the fish's mouth so that they could pay their taxes. And he was to pay his taxes to a government that was more corrupt than our government is and that eventually crucified the Son of God. Well, why should we do that? It's because governments require money to operate. And those under the authority of government have a responsibility to contribute to the maintenance of the government because even though sometimes governments mismanage their money, they also use a lot of it for programs and things that are good for people. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom, to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Taxes in this day referred to taxes that people in Palestine, for instance, paid to the the Roman government, 
far across the world. Custom was uh, what they paid to their local leaders. Custom taxes. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So the point, of course, is that if we owe our governments support, we should give them the support that they require. This is a part of being subject to them and submission to them. Now, living in a democracy, of course, we have many opportunities to uh, express our will. And uh, unfortunately, um, many Evangelical Christians, like you and me, do not take advantage of our opportunity to influence our government by voting. And uh, I'm aware of many evangelical Christians who uh, oppose their governments but never take the time to vote. And that's very unfortunate, I think. We should take advantage of opportunities to shape our government, to have our say, in the policies that our government adopts and carries out. That's one of our privileges, living in a country like this. But even so, of course, the government will occasionally do things that uh, we don't like. Just as living in a family, the parents sometimes will do things that we don't like. And as we are to be subject to those in authority over us in our families and in the church, so we are to be to those in authority in our government. Always? In every case? No, not in every case. Because Peter, you remember, disobeyed his government on two occasions, Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Uh, if you want to look at those passages, uh, I will take time to refer to them here, we've talked about them before. They're in Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29, where Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And in those situations, the government was telling the apostles to do something that was directly opposite to what God had told them to do. God had told them to proclaim the gospel to every creature. And the Sanhedrin, the local authority under which the apostles lived, said, you will not be permitted to preach anymore. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. So there is a place for civil disobedience among Christians, but it is only when the government commands us to disobey God. What about situations where the government permits us to disobey God, but does not command it? For example, in China, there's a law that you cannot have more than, I believe it's one child per family, and that uh, if you have more than one, you have to abort any subsequent children. The, the law commands abortion in China. In the United States, we have laws that permit abortion, but they don't command people to have it. So in seeking to apply these instructions to a situation like that, personally, I would say that if I were in China 
and uh, if my wife was having children, that I would feel compelled to disobey the law when it came to putting my children to death. But living in this country, I do not feel compelled to disobey the law, uh, protesting abortions because it's not commanded, it's simply permitted. Now, Christians disagree on this subject, and uh, that's my own personal reason and, and the reason for it. Well, let's go on in, the, in this passage. The first seven verses deal with uh, our relationship to the government, our conduct toward government. Verses 8 through 10 talk about conduct toward unbelievers more generally. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, some people have taken this command uh, to mean that uh, we should not enter into any kind of debt whatsoever. We should not owe anybody anything. We should not buy a house on time. We should not buy an automobile on time. We should not rack up credit card debt because of what this verse says. I really don't think that's the intent of the verse, and this is why I don't think it is. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, Jesus said that it was perfectly all right to loan people things. Uh, I'll read that verse for you. Matthew 5, 42. Give to him who asks you, do not turn away from you, him who wants to borrow from you. Well, if you, if you borrow somebody from something, you're in his debt, Right? So it seems to me that Jesus was approving that kind of, of borrowing and, and getting into someone's debt. I think what Paul has in mind here is the other kind of situation in which we have outstanding debts. You know, if you buy a house, you enter into a, an arrangement with the mortgage company and you agree to pay off your loan and you have to pay some interest in order to have the privilege of taking time to do that. And you enter into it, everybody's happy, more or less, <laughs> and uh, you, you go along, you pay off your payments. There's another kind of debt, however, in which a person does not meet his, his obligations to pay. And uh, he falls behind in his payments. And I think it's that type of owing that is in view here. The NIV translation captures it well, I think. It says, let no debt remain outstanding. And I think that is probably what's involved here. Obviously, we have to be careful about entering into debt. Proverbs 22.7 warns us that uh, when we uh, get into debt, we put ourselves in a vulnerable, vulnerable position because uh, the person that we're indebted to can take advantage of us. He may even throw us in prison if worse comes to worse. So it's not something we ought to enter into lightly. But uh, I don't think really the New Testament forbids going into debt. It forbids not paying our debts. It forbids... Uh, that type of thing, and I think that's what's in view here. 
Verse 9 goes on, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Owe no one, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Rather than trying to get everything we can from somebody else, we should be more concerned about contributing to other people, to loving them, to having the same regard for our neighbor as we do for ourselves. Agapao is the Greek word here for love. It's the highest kind of love. It's the divine love. And we're to have that type of attitude toward our neighbors. And Jesus taught, of course, that our neighbor is anybody that we have dealings with. This is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, Jesus brought that over into the New Testament code of law, the law of Christ. And that is to be, he said, the second most important law after you shall love the Lord your God wholeheartedly, Matthew 22, um, 36 through 40. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And then verse, the rest of the chapter, verses 11 through 14, focus on the future and bring this section of Paul's thinking to a climax. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. He's saying, wake up. The time is short. So we need to practice these things. We need to live subject to our governmental authorities. We need to live loving one another, not taking advantage of one another. Because the time is short. It's time for us to wake up. Salvation is nearer to us than we believed. He's referring, of course, to the ultimate aspect of our salvation, our glorification. That's closer than when we trusted Christ. So we need to... uh, put these things into practice. Verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Our present form of existence is like groping around in the night, but when Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be a new day for us. But we need to lay aside things that characterize the dark world and the dark atmosphere in which we live now, and to put on our armor like light. In other words, we need to clean up our lives. We need to wake up. We need to clean up. Let us therefore behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. These things are not to characterize those of us that live in the light, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our armor, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So we need to grow up as well. Behave in a responsible, godly manner, and make no provision for the flesh 
so that uh, it will be easy for in, us to indulge ourselves in fleshly desires. Dr. Harry Ironside used to quote a Welshman who, when asked how he could avoid temptation, said, Well, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from nesting in my hair. All of us are going to experience a certain amount of temptation just because we live in the world. We're going to, the birds are going to be there. But we can keep them from nesting in our hair. During the horse and buggy days of our country, there was a man who got converted, and he began going to church, and uh, he had a struggle every Sunday morning because he had to ride his horse to church and uh, there was not a hitching post in front of the church, but there was next door at the tavern. Well, this man had, had been uh, struggling with alcohol for a long time before his conversion. And so he would ride his horse to church. He'd tie his horse up at the hitching post in front of the tavern. And then he just couldn't get past the tavern to go to church. He would, he would go into the tavern each week, and he would just feel horrible about this, but that was a terrible temptation for him. So he went to his pastor, and he asked him about it, and he said, well, you know, Joe, there's another hitching post on the other side of the church, and I'd suggest you tie up your horse over there so you don't have to go past the tavern, which has been such a temptation to you in the past. And so he did that, and so his temptation was minimized. And that's something we need to do sometimes, too. You know, we may have habits, we may go places that present problems for us. You know, if television is a problem, maybe it's a good idea not to, to watch a lot of ta television. Uh, if certain areas of town uh, are tempting for, for, one, for one reason or another, we just shouldn't go in those areas. That's, that's what Paul is talking about in terms of making no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Oh, I just keep falling into that sin. Well, why? Maybe it's because we are putting in a ourselves in a place where we're being constantly tempted. If that's the case, we need to tie our horse to another hitching post. Well, if I would summarize this chapter, I would say it's saying that we need to submit to government and love others as we wait for Christ to return. That's what this chapter is all about, I think. We need to submit to our government. We need to love others as we wait for Jesus Christ to return. Well, our time is up. I had hoped that we would have a little time for discussion this morning, but... Uh, we don't. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the government that we live under. We realize that there are many people in the world today who have to live under governments that are very selfish. And while they do provide certain benefits for their citizens, they also take advantage of their people more than ours does. We thank you for living in a democracy where we can have a say in our government. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. We pray that you help us to be good citizens, that we will follow what you have commanded us to do in this institution in which we live, 
that we will be like compliant children living in a family who go along with what we are commanded to do for the welfare of all concerned. Help us to stand up for what is right. Help us not to participate in what is contrary to your will. Help us to say no to the government when it's doing things that are contrary to your will. But we pray, too, that you'll help us to to find our place, to fit in, to be supportive. And we thank you for your promise of blessing us if we do that. In Jesus' name.